Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, climate chaos and militarism. We are joined by Nick Buxton, who is the co-editor of an important book called The Secure and the Dispossessed, How the Military and Corporations Are Seeking to Shape a Climate-Changed World. Nick Buxton is a communications consultant working as a publications editor and supporting online learning and supportive activist scholar communities for Transnational Institute. He works actively on issues of climate change, militarism, and economic justice, all of which show up in this book. He has been based in California since 2008 and prior to that lived in Bolivia for four years. Nick Buxton, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. Tell us how, how this book came about and, and what it deals with. Well, back in uh, 2009, I was actually working, um, I was living in Bolivia, and um, I went to the, um, to the climate, the big Copenhagen climate talks, which there's a lot of expectation was going to deliver. And I was actually part of the Bolivian government delegation. And now Bolivia is one of those countries which is really on the um, Front, forefront of climate change. Um, the city I lived in, La Paz, um, gets about 20 to 30 percent of its water from glaciers, which are almost completely disappearing. Um, so here you have one of the one of the poorest countries in South America suffering the most from climate change, and yet one of the least responsible for causing it. Um, and one of the things that I could see as I was part of that talk is there was quite clearly an attempt by all the rich industrialized countries. Um, whether they had to have great speeches on climate change, but actually to do very little. But I started to think, well, these aren't people who are climate deniers in the kind of Trumpian model. These are people who say climate change is the real threat and yet are proposing to do nothing about it. What are they actually planning for the consequences that are clearly going to come from climate change? And that's when I started to talk to um, security analysts. And they say, well, actually, the military has been long planning for climate change impacts. And so have some of the biggest corporations. They have models. They, they do um, scenario planning for what will happen as climate change impacts start to hit us ever more severely. So I started to look into that and start to pull together a team of people to look at what this would mean in terms of food, what this would mean in terms of water, and who are the kind of key players um, who are preparing, what their plans are. And are they the sort of future that we want? We often hear from good, well-intended people who care about the, the natural environment that, that the U.S. military takes climate change seriously, uh, as if that is uh, entirely a good thing. Um, are, there, are, are there not some downsides to that? Definitely. I mean, I think it's, it's of course, at the moment, what we, have this situa- we have this bizarre situation where one of the largest world economy in, and one of the most powerful nations is is not even prepared to um, believe its own scientists. Uh, and in that situation, it's suddenly the only actual people inside Trump's cabinet who actually seem to take climate change seriously are the military. Uh, Mattis, the defense secretary, apparently, well, he, in his, in his, when they were doing the speeches to kind of verify his appointment, was quite clear saying that climate change is a security threat. So that's meant that a whole group of people, whether it's uh, Democrats, or whether it's environmental organizations have said, you know, well, at least the military is talking about it and has kind of allied themselves with the military saying, you know, here are the adults in the rooms. We always hear them referred to. Um, and they, they're not pretending that climate change isn't an issue. It, I think my concern really, and, and one that we, 
we study in the book is that you have to think what are their interests. And really the big question comes up is whose security? Uh, and when you look at military planning documents and why they take climate change seriously, uh, the first is that these are hard, hard-nosed people. They're planning, mili- making military plans. They're going to base things on, on, on science and facts. Uh, but their real, their real underlying thing is how do we maintain operational effectiveness? So the reason uh, why they are really concerned about climate change is because the U.S. has about 1,700 facilities in coastal areas, and some of those um, are starting to be flooded. So Hampton Roads, Virginia, one of the biggest kind of military hubs in the whole planet, um, is frequently getting sea surges now. Um, So they can't ignore climate change. That's affecting their military effectiveness. Similarly, when they start talking about green fuels or solar power, it's because um, the U.S. has already been really stung. In Iraq, for example, its dependence on fossil fuel and in Afghanistan made it very vulnerable um, to attacks from guerrilla forces because they could attack the convoys and therefore undermine the military machine. Um, and, and but those those are very much kind of military military concerns. Uh, and what they never do, if you look at their plans, is really look at the causes of climate change. Um, and how to tackle that, nor are they primarily concerned with protecting the most vulnerable. So in terms of the causes of climate change, uh, they ignore quite blatantly the fact that the U.S. is the the actual Pentagon is the single largest organizational user of petroleum in the world. Having having, uh, over 800 bases overseas and a huge military bootprint, as they call it, um, is is very is both very costly but also very polluting, um, and so they bear a huge responsibility for the crisis. And when you look at their plans, they're also not looking at saying how do we protect those who will be most affected by climate change. Uh, the military plans talk about how we defend economically high active areas, which means areas where there are large corporations. How do we maintain sea routes at times of instability? So it's very much about keeping. The current system um, of where wealth is very concentrated in a few hands running, it's not about saying who will be most affected by climate change and how do we make sure we, we both prepare people and protect them. And that's why I think it's a dangerous thing just to suddenly say, you know, because they're the adults in the room, they're the ones you want to get into bed with. Uh, indeed, and, and they don't. Uh, it, it, there's a problem, isn't there, already when they've said it's a security threat because they haven't said that climate change is a threat to ecosystems or a threat to humanity, or they've said it's a security threat, meaning an opportunity for militarism. I, isn't that what it means? Yeah, it's, security is one of those very. If, if any, if you ever hear the word security in. <laughs> In national discussions, you have to ask uh, ask lots of questions because um, the security it's it's always dovetailed that security, um, you know, national security is something that benefits all. Um, and actually, if we think most people when they think about security, they mean am I am I, have I got a job? Have I got a roof over my head? Um, have I got um, security in my neighbourhood? Um, from crime, but they, but it's dovetailed suddenly into national security, which is um, maintaining a, a large U.S. imperial presence across the across the world, one of the largest military budgets that dwarfs any other nation. I mean, the U.S. military spending is about is equal to the next 
equivalent of 10, um, 10 countries. Um, and it's a huge diversion of resources. So, of course, when you're diverting money towards supporting this kind of huge military presence, you're also diverting exactly the kind of money that we need to prepare for it. Um, even when the military starts to kind of paint itself in great colors around humanitarian aid, it's, it's hugely expensive. You know, it costs in Haiti in 2010, um, the U.S. was spending just $70 million, um, $70 million in just a few weeks to operate one aircraft carrier. That same money, $70 million in Haiti, could have had a huge impact in terms of its reconstruction. So it's also a very expensive presence, even when they, uh, when they do deploy a little bit of their efforts to doing good things, which is a, a tiny part of what they do. Indeed. We're speaking with Nick Buxton. The book is The Secure and the Dispossessed, How the Military and Corporations Are Seeking to Shape a Climate-Changed World. Uh, talk a little bit, Nick, about uh, something that's in the book, uh, the, the practice of, of greenwashing. Uh, it, it seems that some people have been have been very intentionally sold on the idea that, that the U.S. military and Walmart and ExxonMobil and other uh, corporations have, have gone on green. Uh, what are the facts of the matter? Well, it's, it's always been the case that, um, and we see this with, and that's one of the reasons why the military has, uh, particularly under the Obama era, was quite happy to embrace climate change and the fact that they were taking it seriously as part of their mission. Um, anyone who joins up to either the military or, or becomes a member of the corporation um, likes to feel that they're part of something good. So, so companies or the military have always painted so the military and the advertising will always emphasize their humanitarian aspect. Uh, companies will always say they're doing something good for the planet um, because that's part of actually, it's an important part of their recruitment. But it's also part of their reputation and maintain, and in a sense, um, putting off people, um, shining an effective spotlight on what they're doing. So, so what often happens is most perversely is that those who are most destructive um, and having the most impact in terms of climate change are the ones who are who have the biggest and smartest and most well-paid PR campaigns to say they're doing the most. So, on, um, in terms of some of the biggest corporations like Walmart um, or ExxonMobil, um, both of whom are very much part of a high-polluting, high-carbon-intensive um, industrial model. Um, they're the ones who have most of the adverts making themselves out as kind of green heroes and green saviors. In some places, it gets really perverse um, in terms of military companies. And back in 2006, the British Aerospace, one of the biggest British um, arms, arms dealer, um, did a whole presentation that it was going to go green and was going to produce environmentally friendly weapons. It would have kind of reduced reduced lead bullets um, or you would have um, they were offering also kind of rockets which produce less toxins um, and I mean this was going to absurd length because the fact is that they were still um, ultimately uh, instruments of death but they were suddenly being painted with this with this um, green gloss um, and so, so it, it can get quite perverse but I think what uh, I think the, the big issue is that when you see and greenwashing is really about kind of distracting people from effective practices. And it sometimes is swallowed far too effectively. Walmart did a huge campaign a few, when it was kind of losing its market share and 
starting to um, suffer. It, it launched a very successful PR campaign that Walmart was going to go green, that it was going to produce renewable energy. Um, on you know, you're going to have solar panels and all their warehouses. They were going to reduce waste. And they got a huge amount of free publicity from from their uh, announcements. But when you looked at it uh, about six or seven years later, when they looked into it, actually you found out that um, their 100% renewable energy goal um, in about six years has only led to 2% of their, them producing their energy. Um, their, and many of the other goals were just kind of lauded goals. But actually, when you delved into it, were making... Uh, very little progress, and they also distract from the fact that a, a company like Walmart is its very model is predicated on monocrops um, in, in cheap goods um, and industrialized global globalized growth, which actually is worsening the situation of climate change. So it's, it's a very effective distraction tactic, but we should treat it as such. In the discussion of this in in the book, uh, there was a product I think I heard of for the first time in in your book called reputational risk insurance. What is that? Um, there is a chapter there that looks at kind of how the different corp- different corporate sectors are preparing for climate change impacts, and what you see in all of that is is that um, they also have a language of security. And that was interesting to us. It was at the same time as the military was talking about climate change becoming a security threat. You also had um, co- corporations speaking in a very similar language. They tended to use words more like risk. Um, and so you have corporations are also worried about climate change, primarily from a security risk angle. Uh, they're thinking, how does this affect my operations? So, so for example, Abercrombie and Fitch, uh, the retailers here suffered during Hurricane Sandy when some of its whole, um, when both warehouses were flooded and some of its um, stores had to be closed and so on. So they think, how do we, how do we deal with climate change and can keep our operations running and, and reduce the dangers to loss of income? Uh, but they're also looking at the kind of risks uh, that could come as there's instability and. Um, but they're also looking really at reputation. You know, how do we, as climate change has more of an impact, as people expect us to do things, to be responsible global actors, uh, what are the risks to our reputation? And that's why you get so many companies involved in, in greenwashing. It's really a kind of a way of saying we're good global actors, we're good global citizens, you shouldn't crit- criticise us. And reputational risk insurance is actually one of the products that was offered um, everything like this can be turned into a market in the end. And what we've discovered with insurance is that you, it's rather like the banking sector. You have ins- companies can get insured, and then those who are insuring companies or houses then get reinsured by others. And then you can start to sell those reinsurance pr- products on the market at higher rates. And one of the things they started to offer was also reputational risk. So BP, after the oil spill in the, in the Gulf, um, led to a whole bunch of um, products being offered for companies to say you can have um, your, you know, your reputation insured um, for the risks that you might take from being involved in in damaging destructive projects. Products, um, how do you protect your kind of share price um, and the risks that come from kind of um, dangerous and destructive um, practices? So, so it's it's 
it's part of our globalized, financialized world that everything, even the most destructive practices, can be turned into financial products that can then be sold on the market. It really seems that that public relations and profiteering uh, are given more priority than mitigating the damage or preventing the damage of climate change. Um, in the book, you talk about uh, UK representatives at the European Union suggesting that, that rescuing drowning refugees from the Mediterranean would only encourage more refugees. Uh, rather than refugee aid, the, the biggest industry to have grown out of the recent crises of, of mass fleeing from Western-driven and armed wars has been border walls and fences and guards and weapons. Uh, are, I mean, are we putting more energy into uh, you know, making ourselves feel better and protecting rich people uh, than into solving the problem? Well, that's the, that's the premise of the book, really, is that we are in a situation where climate change is going to is clearly going to have impacts. Uh, we know that uh, it's, it's already having an impact. We see it in the extreme weather conditions we've experienced in the U.S., whether it's the, the major drought in California or the flooding that's happened in Puerto Rico and in Houston. Um, but we see it in much less reported, of course, all the time in many other countries. Um, at the same time, there's been a drought here. There's been a very serious drought in Bolivia, but that's almost net. I'm sure that's got almost... 0.001% coverage in, in the U.S. media. Um, so so it's, it's a situation that um, we wanted to raise. It's like who, in, in a situation of in key, increased um, instability and also in terms of in, increased climate impact, um, who, who are we putting in charge of the future? Um, and should it be those who are most responsible for the crisis? Um, corporations, if you look at it, uh, actually 90%, 90 corporations, only 90 corporations have created more than two-thirds of all the global emissions since industrialization. So you're actually not talking, we, we treat this as a problem for everyone, but actually it's a few small corporations who produce vast amounts of emissions. Similarly, the Pentagon being the single largest user. So do we want to turn to them for our security in the climate change world, and whose security will they be really providing? And we just, and that's 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 really the danger. We see this this world being created of secure, the secure, and the dispossessed. In Europe, um, we did some further research, really looking at the whole build-up of the border wars, because one of the things you get is promised as security through a kind of militarized model, is is the kind of promise that Trump makes. You know, if we have more people having to leave their countries or having to move because of climate problems, the solution is putting up walls. And he mainly deploys it against against terrorists, but it's also, you'll see it in many military documents, that actually their big specter that they're warning about is refugees, climate refugees that we're going to have to protect against. So, um, so what should then we if you be look doing? into actually who's involved, what you see is that, that there's a small number of people, mainly arms companies, who are now moving into the home and security market and they're making huge amounts of money um, and the perverse thing we found in Europe was that some of the biggest arms sellers in the Middle East and North Africa, so the ones causing a lot of the, uh, fueling a lot of the conflicts in that region are now some of the biggest con uh, winners of EU border contracts to build the walls to build the robots, to build all the security prevention measures that are being built 
on the European border. So they're both causing the crisis and then they're reaping the wars. Um, and of course, the people who are suffering the process and those are, are the thousands and thousands who currently lose their lives, lose their lives in the Mediterranean, just trying to get to safety. So, so there's little more horrendous and horrific than that. Uh, but what should we be doing? What, uh, what, what should our approach be to looming climate chaos? Well, each, that's what we did look at in the chapter. Is that it can be, it can be, um, it can be deeply depressing if you see, if you see some of the plans being made at the moment. But actually, what you see on the ground is a very different picture. And and really, what we're posed with is the choice. If we're going to be um, if we're going to be, as we face climate impacts, we have to ask if we're not going to put our hands, faith and trust in corporations and the military to solve it for us, then we have to look at the solutions that will come from ourselves. And what we find in each of these areas is, is that not only are the solutions, uh, what's interesting is not only the solution, the real solution um, really will start to protect those who most need protection, they also are the kind of solutions that will result that can tackle um, and the underlying causes of climate change in the first place. If you look at the systems of food, for example, um, uh, the kind of big corporate control of food systems, which encourages a very globalized model, is also actually a very unresilient system to climate change um, impacts. What you find is that. Um, uh, what they found is that after major storms, for example, extreme weather, more diverse local food systems are much more quickly able to recuperate than the big monocop plantations run by the by the likes of Monsanto and Syngenta and so on. But actually, the solution um, uh, both tackle the uh, and they're also far less polluted, so they cause far less emissions. So, so really the solutions that come from a more diverse, localized, local controlled, um, uh, uh, community powered solutions are, are ones that can both stop worsening climate change and, and deal with it, the, its impacts. You see it similarly in energy in Puerto Rico right now. Um, those who've recovered quick, most quickly are those who have local, um, local solar panels and they have small microgrids. They're the ones who managed to bring their power much more quickly than others. So, and, of course, solar power is a much more um, green technology. So, so those, are the, we, those are the choices I feel that we need to make right now, is, is we, need to, um, we need to build up um, and support those, um, those local solutions that are taking place all around the world and, and, and really build that up from that city and community level um, and, and stop putting our faith in corporations and the military to resolve this crisis. Nick Buxton, we've got about five minutes left. Uh, what about environmental organizations? Uh, I mean, in your book, you, you document the Nature Conservancy partnering with the military, the Natu National Resources Defense Council partnering with the military, Conservation International helping weapons dealers greenwash themselves, etc. And I could give other examples from my own experience. Uh, it, it, how, do we, how do we organize for action on a large scale if these big uh, nonprofit organizations are, are so deeply compromised well i think you had this um it wasn't just the military at the same time as that they were kind of bringing on the military on board um, i think there was a, they were also doing the same with corporations i think there was a, a whole a level of 
essentially defeatism of some of these activist groups in, in the 90s that decided power lay with corporations and the military. So if you had them as allies, that would resolve the climate crisis. Um, and we've seen where that's led to. It, it's led to them greenwashing their practices, going back to our earlier conversation. So, so Lockheed Martin is very happy to be on uh, to be on the board and similarly the Defence Department to be a partner in com- conservation with the Nature Conservancy. They're very happy to have those green organisations um, giving them a green a green glow, but they continue to be the primary responsible um, causes of climate change. Um, and and so there was a there was a real defeatist attitude. I think I think that is changing now, though. I think uh, we do have to. Um, I think there is a growing recognition, especially since the economic crisis in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, um, and also um, really that's kind of been brought to the fore by uh, the election of Trump, that has made people realise that we can't stay, we can't either stay in these silos where we just talk to ourselves, nor can we uh, ignore the need to kind of make connections between between movements. And really, and we can't ignore the need to kind of go much deeper and more and look at the kind of systemic causes of these crises, that the causes of climate crisis and the causes of huge inequality in the world are very are, are the same ones. Um, they're about money concentrated in very few hands and and um, protected by a, a, a vast and disproportionate spending on military. Um, and so I, I, I'm quite hopeful, actually, that I think these things are, are starting to break down. I see it a lot in, I live in California, um, but I see it similarly in my home country of the UK, that uh, a lot of organisations are starting to make those connections um, and starting to look much more systemically. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful. And I think a lot of that's been built up at local level um, in local campaigns in local coalitions in local cities. So you have cities like uh, in Barcelona in Spain, which is is both tackling housing, but also saying we can't have a a just solution for housing if we don't also look at those, um, if we don't also have international solidarity and recognise their interconnections. And and so they're also making really strong statements on international trade. They're also making statements on militarism. They're on on immigration. But I, I think those those kind of connections are being made and they're the ones that we should do. And I think, uh, if I could just finish with this point, I think um, one of the stories that we draw to attend, we kind of conclude our book with is is the one of Hurricane Sandy where you had um, this storm slam into New York and it cut out the, the power supplies through to the subways to the public hospitals and one building was left alight and that was Goldman Sachs because it had its... Uh, um, generators and it was it was able to build sandbags to protect itself. So you had the whole of Manhattan kind of going black except for Goldman Sachs. So you very much had that symbol of the private corporation being secure and the public to possess. Um, and then you had a very typical response and they sent in the National Guard. But what was actually put them to shame was the organizing of the communities that came out of the Occupy movement who at one point We've had twenty seconds um, thousands Mike thousands of volunteers across the city organizing 12 centers. And they really showed that actually crises, we think it brings out the worst in people, but it actually can bring out the best. It can bring out actions of solidarity, of real effective cooperation and communication. 
And those are the kind of responses that we're going to need to climate change. So that's where really the book finishes. We've got a lot of hope here that we can grab um, that the crisis is a really an opportunity to re-change our systems and to, to approach uh, the world that we live in in a very different and just way. It's a great note to end on. Wish we could go on. Nick Buxton's book is The Secure and the Dispossessed, How the Military and Corporations Are Seeking to Shape a Climate-Changed World. Nick, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.